Okay, so this is episode one of High Level Performance Podcast. I'm really delighted to bring on Mark Armitage. I know Mark quite well as he's a lecturer of mine at University of Suffolk for my degree at the moment. Uh, but I'll let Mark introduce himself, a little bit about his story and his background, just so you've got a bit more of an insight of what he's all about. So welcome, Mark. Hi, Harry. Thanks for thanks for having me on. It's almost role reversal today. I feel like you're assessing me, so yeah. <laughs> hopefully it goes well. <laughs> so so um, I'll start back at the beginning. So my background um, was working applied in football, really. So obviously I went to university after school and did sport and exercise science and then a master's in strength and conditioning while I was working. Um, I was quite fortunate in that when I was still at college, I managed to gain some work experience, if you like. And started at Cambridge City and then Cambridge United Football Clubs, um, just on a voluntary basis, just sort of helping out where I could. Then when I went to university, I got the chance to do some more unpaid internship work at Watford Football Club. Uh, and this was a really cool experience for me because at the time they were in the Premier League. Um, so again, it was only really helping out, filling water bottles, chasing balls, the, the usual, or, or should I say the old school intern remit. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was it was a great learning experience of just being in that high performance environment and yeah, it really confirmed to me that that was the environment hopefully I wanted to, to work in in the future. Um, so I did okay at uni, I got a, a first class degree um, and obviously I had a bit of experience behind me um, and if I'm being honest I probably naively thought I was going to walk straight into a job which unfortunately in reality doesn't necessarily happen. Um, so I took a job part-time working as, as a lecturer if you like in a sixth form college and I think that was quite a smart move because what that afforded me to do was was time basically to continue to um, seek out experiences and opportunities. And obviously it gave me a salary to facilitate it as well, because quite often it can obviously be challenging if, if you are having to undertake unpaid work um, to sort of facilitate that. So I worked in the sixth form college full time, but then obviously had weekends, evenings and holidays. Uh, and I was fortunate that I could uh, help out at Norwich City Football Club. Um, to begin with, it was unpaid, sort of supporting the first team and the reserve teams at the time. Uh, and then that led into some sort of part-time or sessional employment. Um, and basically, I guess you could say that I was the under-9s, the under-16s um, sports scientist. Um, did that for about a year. And then, if you like, I got my big break. Uh, I was fortunate to get my first full-time post at Southampton Football Club, where I was the under-18 strength and conditioning coach. Uh, had a brilliant couple of years there and was obviously fortunate to work with, with some players who went on and are still doing some great stuff in the game. And I guess that was the catalyst, if you like, for my move to, to Arsenal. Um, we won't go into to loads of details today. My role at Arsenal was slightly different because rather than looking after specific um, age groups, we tended to look after a group of players. Um, so there was a roughly 40 players and four conditioners and we had a group of 10 players each, which was quite a nice way of working that meant our players would effectively fall across the under 18s and the under 23s and also obviously be available if they were the right age to play in the youth champions league right, or okay, obviously, yeah yeah, yeah. Or, or be available um, to sort of play for the first team so, so that was like my role but with regards to the team that i predominantly worked with i did do all of the under 23 games and also did the uh, under 19s youth champions league which again was sort of a really cool experience for myself um after that, I felt like I'd done quite a lot with regards to, to youth football in a club environment because, like I said, pretty much had um, the perfect career to this point, literally yeah, transitioning from under-9s at Norwich to under-23s at Arsenal. 
And then the opportunity uh, arose to do some work for the Football Association. Um, so this was more consultancy based work. So again, it was a different uh, opportunity for myself. So to step away from being employed permanently to, to almost um, being more of a consultant based um, member of staff. And what that afforded me to do really was to, to have lots of different experiences in different environments and with different coaches and, and with different players. Um, so for England, I, I worked with the under 15s up to the under 20s although the males under 18 was my normal gig, if you like. So that was the, the squad I would I'd work with most regularly. And I also got an opportunity to work in the female side of the game, which again was a massive learning experience for myself. Uh, and I predominantly worked with the, with the ladies and the women's uh, under uh, 18s and 19s. But again, I also got a, an opportunity on one camp to work with the senior team, which again was a brilliant opportunity for me to, to link, if you like, um, sort of the youth development model to, to the professional and the performance model. I guess that then coincided with myself and my own personal development. So then I managed to get a job with a first team. Um, so Huddersfield Town, when they went up to the Premier League, um, I had an unbelievable year up there. Uh, and like I say, for me, that almost completed the journey because I've managed to transition from sort of under nines through sort of the foundation phase into the youth development phase through the professional development phase and then to actually see what it was like in the, in the first team environment. Um, so obviously managed to get a few experiences uh, and, and had to move around the country to facilitate it. Um, so I guess like most people come a time in my life where I wanted to settle down. Um, so decided to move back home to Suffolk uh, and managed to get a job uh, lecturing at University of Suffolk so I'm a course leader for, for strength and conditioning. And alongside this, obviously, what I don't want to do is, is while I continue to develop academically, I don't really want to de-skill as a practitioner. Um, so alongside the work at university, I also do in my, in my own time some sort of consultancy work, if you like. And I've got my own rehabilitation company, um, East Coast Conditioning and Rehabilitation. Uh, and basically, this company I run with my wife. So I think it's quite cool for the, for the local area. Um, hopefully, with my background as, as a sports scientist, a S&C coach, uh, and my wife as a physio, um, what we feel we can do is, is, is really start to, to help people with regards to specific sports rehab. So whether it be people with uh, reoccurring injuries or quite traumatic injuries, um, hopefully we can almost give, give a complete package and try to replicate uh, what we've learned in professional environments uh, at a more local level. Um, so, yeah, I said I'd try and do it quickly. That, that's the whistle-stop tour of where I am today. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Obviously, it's a really interesting journey as well. And it's one that shows, obviously, you've got to work hard from the bottom, if you will, and be willing to sort of have the humility along the way to put in the work to get to where you want to get to. And obviously, you've had a really interesting portfolio of clubs and different players, I'd imagine, ranging from different age groups so obviously that's really good that you've sort of learned how to apply that to different age groups along the way as well and it's been able to lead you into sort of a route of academia if you will so just on that obviously you've worked at higher elite levels with both academies and first teams so what do you think the main differences are in terms of how you'd personally approach strength and conditioning principles and methods between the academies, youth development and the first team environment? 
Yeah, for sure. Just before I answer that question, Harry, I think you just made a great point, which I'll pick up on again. Like, I do get conscious sometimes when I tell people about my journey that, like, it almost seems like it was perfect. And just to sort of reassure people, it, it wasn't. There was a lot of struggles and adversities along the way. And I think it's fairly well established now that the the journey or the path, if you like, to the top is never linear. And I think my advice for people who wants to, to go down a similar route is to try to build the resilience to overcome the adversity. And I think quite often in life that if, if, if you're not passionate about what you do and you don't know why you want to get there, quite often barriers can become excuses. Um, so quite often now if I'm mentoring people, I'll ask them like potentially why they haven't done certain things and they could always come up with a reason. And I think the, the challenge for people now is to try and find solutions. So, so if you go down one path and it doesn't work out, that's okay. How, how can you come back on yourself and maybe go in a different direction? Um, so, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to chuck that in as well. So going back to yeah, your question, yeah. which was basically the difference between, if I get it right, uh, how I work in the academy compared to a first team. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> that is a very good question and one that I, I do sort of contemplate quite a lot. Uh, and I guess my advice generally would be the things that you do don't necessarily change that much. Um, so the look and feel can be quite similar. Um, but I think what we definitely shouldn't do is we shouldn't apply what I would call performance models in the development phases. Um, and I think obviously things like social media are great these days because we can see how people work and we can gain ideas. But I don't think what we should do is, is we shouldn't see what Real Madrid have done in training last week and try to replicate that with our local under nines team. Um, because obviously we're working with totally different players and athletes and mentalities, constraints, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's just particularly key in the foundation phases. So if we're working with the real younger age group, so we're sort of working between under nine to under 11s and 12s. I think basically we should get back to the basics and, and get, get brilliant at that. And I think first and foremost, if you want to work as an S&C coach in, in football like I did, I think it's important that, that we facilitate players actually falling in love with the game. And I think that's something that's been quite powerful for me with regards to, obviously, the games that have been on the telly recently post-COVID and lockdown. For me, I think the players should be celebrated with regards to how they've managed to motivate themselves to perform at the levels they have in empty stadiums and things like that. And it shows to me, especially watching like last night and Liverpool lifting the league title, that them players, obviously, that they are well paid for what they do. But the impression I got, they also love it and they love the game. And, and you mentioned earlier about humility and people talk about players like Mo Salah and, and Mane. And I think there's a lot of stuff goes around on social media about I think Mane was pictured with a broken mobile telephone. And obviously he could afford to buy another one, but he just didn't need to. I think that's because he's got a love for the game. And, and if he didn't make it to the top level, he would still probably play it every week because that's his passion. Um, so I think that's the first most important thing we should try to do. We should try to make things fun and engaging and we should try to spark that interest in, in the sport for, for, for a lifetime rather than just a career. Yeah, I think tied into that as well, we almost have like a moral obligation, if you like, to develop some general skills. Um, so again, trying to come away from just football, how can we try to develop things that might help children in other sports or other walks of life? Um, I think something that I've become more realistic with, and you are dead right, I am very fortunate to, to have worked with some unbelievable players who are playing in the Premier League, the Champions League and, and the World Cups, etc, etc. But I've also worked with some very, very good players who unfortunately, for whatever reason, didn't quite make it and they probably didn't get the, 
the rewards that their efforts and abilities probably sort of demanded. Um, so again, I think we need to be realistic. If I'm coaching an under 10s um, team, how many of those are actually going to go on to, to be um, professional players? Um, so I think, like I say, we should make sure that although, yeah, we want to try to challenge people and give them movement competencies and, and physical capabilities, I think at the younger age groups, we should um, learn a lot through playing games. And that should be our, our focus and how as coaches can we put constraints on the activities we set that brings about the physical qualities without us necessarily having to coach it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so I guess what we want to try to do is almost like create the right environments where the players can almost evolve and develop naturally. And then obviously as they start to get through the system, that's where we can start to put our specialism on it. Um, and I think another thing with regards to environment as well is we can't give people too much too soon. And, and to a certain extent, we almost want them to earn the right um, because we want to keep a certain amount of drive and ambition. Uh, and I think it's a, a phrase that I've heard a couple of times that obviously there's no hunger in paradise. So although we want to give the people we're working with uh, our maximum at the time, I think that needs to be appropriate to the level they're at. And like I say, try to not make the, the foundation phases and youth development phases um, based around performance models, basically. Yeah, that's, it's a really interesting sort of philosophy or thought, if you will, in terms of, especially at the younger ages, think of it more as developing as an overall athlete as opposed to just focusing on football. Because you often hear about players with multiple talents, like some could have gone into boxing, some could have become like within the athletics field. So it's interesting that that's looked at even like from a young age at like elite top clubs as well. And that's the way that it's managed. For, for sure. And I think like academy coaches nowadays don't only have a job to do with regards to trying to support in the development of players into their first team, but we've almost got like a social and a moral responsibility. And I guess what we want to try to be able to do is to improve the health and the well-being of our future nation. And I think because of that, coaches nowadays need to be a lot more holistic in their approach. And they probably need to give the people they're working with some movement competencies and athletic qualities that, that I guess you like the players previously might have been able to develop elsewhere. So obviously you've mentioned there about different sports. I think if we go back through different generations, children before were probably exposed to a lot more different types of physical activity. Whereas now we're, we're starting to get into a little bit more early specialisation. So nowadays, if you spoke to like an eight or a nine-year-old and you said, what sports do you play? Rather than saying, oh, swimming, cricket, basketball, tennis, et cetera, et cetera. They probably only play one or two. So obviously, if we're thinking about developing this holistic, not only um, player, but person, we probably have to almost compensate for some of the things that they're not doing. And I think that's why things like multi-sports have become more popular in academies. Because I think clubs are realising that, one, it's a very long career. So if you are working with a 10-year-old who goes on to make it to the highest level, you know, they're going to be doing the same thing day in, day out for 20 years if you're not careful. And what's going to be the cost of that from a physical, psychological and social perspective? Um, but then also, like, you're having to backfill other skills. Like now, just jumping forwards to today when I work in my private practice quite often I have to go back and backfill and we're talking about players that play to a relatively high level but they were never 
taught the, the movement competencies they probably need to underpin their performance. And that probably manifests itself in overuse injuries and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I think basically we need to try to keep, um, to begin with, as, as broad as possible and almost build year on year so we can, we can really start to specialise when they need it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some good points raised there, uh, definitely. And it leads me on to wanting to ask you a little bit about, in terms of movement, competencies and capabilities obviously that's probably a way that you'd look to monitor development of youth athletes so is it just that or are there other ways that you would look to monitor their physical development and progression yeah for sure i think there's a lot of talk again nowadays on social media and things about um the need for coaches to coach and for me personally the best bit of technology a coach can have sits in between their ears. I think if you've got a coach who's got a good foundation knowledge and they've got some very good experiences, the algorithm in their brain can probably find the solution to a lot of the issues. Um, so although technology is great, don't get me wrong, I think we can become over-reliant on, the, on it. Mm. And coaches want to use it too soon. So rather than sort of refine, refining their own coaching practice so so for me spend a lot of time just coaching people watching how they move um, obviously learning from other people with regards to a competency and obviously what we can't do is is we can't we can't put all of our athletes in the same box every human being is an individual and they're unique so with that obviously they're going to start to move slightly differently etc etc but you're probably going to start to build if you like some degrees of freedom that you're happy for people to work with you so this is the ideal model. If they sit to the left or to right, that's fine. But what they can't do is they can't sit too far outside of that. Um, so, so I think coaching experiences is massively important. Obviously, I now work in a university and we need to make sure that, that our students have the academic understanding and knowledge. Um, so, so basically, they've got that solid foundation, which goes back to what we were talking about when we work with younger age players and the need to be holistic. Because if you don't get the foundation right, then obviously it's going to manifest itself potentially an issue down the line so so education is absolutely key but I guess what I try to challenge our students with is okay how can you apply that so if this theory or model suggests this what does this mean to you and your athletes and and how does that model translate into every single person you work with so does it work for every single person or does one model work better for one person than another somebody else or is it a hybrid of different models which actually works in your own environment so I think yeah my biggest advice for anybody who wants to pursue a career working with other people is to spend as much time as possible in as many different environments as you can get into and like I say my biggest learning when I started out at Cambridge uh, City, Cambridge United and Watford wasn't necessarily about um, heart rate analysis or training thresholds or, or nutrition or whatever it was my biggest learning experience was how to to survive in certain environments how to um, communicate with different people uh, how to build relationships uh, when to say something, when to say nothing. How can I give the same information to two different people in totally different ways? Um, and I think that's quite well established now. And if you listen to other podcasts, everybody's talking about the soft skills and the importance of. But for me, yeah, I, I guess I'm banging that drum as well. If you want to be a good practitioner, practice what you do. Yeah, so it, it's more the approach of like your intuition and personality and able to build rapport with players is just as important as reeling off statistics to them 
for, for sure. And obviously, I do need to be mindful of my role. And I would like to think, hopefully, I'm, I'm sort of suitably qualified and, and, and um, knowledgeable enough to do that. But, but there's far more knowledge in the world than what I can, one person can hold inside their minds. And I think quite often we are very comfortable with what we do know, but we're not so comfortable with what we don't know. And I think as coaches, you have to be more prepared to make yourself uncomfortable at times to become more comfortable in the future. And again, like knowledge is quite easily accessible now. So, so back in the day, universities used to be knowledge centres. So if you wanted to develop your knowledge, you probably had to go to university because they would have the people with the knowledge and experience to teach and help you. Whereas nowadays, like we've obviously just done in the recent lockdown, like you can go on YouTube as long as the content is credible. There's online courses, there's things that you can read, there's blogs available, there's webinars. There's, there's so many different ways now that we can, we can ascertain information. Uh, and mobile telephones and laptops are, uh, are soon being able to become far more knowledgeable than what than potentially what people can be, because obviously they can hold so much more information. But obviously the one thing that a laptop and a mobile telephone can't do directly is is to communicate. Um, and I think that is the art of coaching, basically. And I think, like you say, if people get better at communicating and coaching and building relationships and reports, they're probably going to be more effective because and there's no point in me having knowledge and understanding and experience in my head if I can't translate that to the person that I'm working with. Um, because fundamentally, the reason that we coach is because we want to help to develop and improve people. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess for me, experience is massively important. And then it's basically communication, communication and communication. The more effective you can start to communicate your thoughts and ideas, hopefully the better you'll become at whatever it is you want to do whether it be in academia or coaching or, or any walk of life yeah for sure yeah definitely I, I'd agree with that I think it is definitely more about or as much about your soft skills as it is the knowledge etc as well uh, so using those skills and being able to coach and develop youth athletes to your full potential how important do you think it is to a get them on board and buy into like SNC from a young age upwards and how important is it to develop them in terms of their chances of playing first team football and reaching their full potential physically and as a footballer? Yes, I guess buying's a very, very interesting one and I think this is something I've probably experienced personally myself and I guess it goes back to the whole notion of trying to apply what's in the textbooks. Um, so again, it's just making sure that the activities you do are, are appropriate and engaging. And I think if you want somebody to learn anything, it needs to be fun, challenging and engaging. And I think if it's not those three things, then obviously uh, the amount of learning potential is going to be diminished. Um, so again, I would challenge people to think how else can you achieve uh, the same outcome, but in a way which is more user friendly. Um, so I think of myself when I first started out, I'd be sort of the, the classic sports scientist and everything would be in dead straight lines. And I'd have sort of wooden dowels to work on Olympic lifting techniques with sort of under 11s, et cetera, et cetera. And, and obviously what I'm not saying is, is that stuff isn't important. I think it's, it's massively important that, that younger athletes are exposed to things like Olympic weightlifting technique, because hopefully you can basically develop it over time and you can take advantage of their, nat their, their natural um, athleticism 
So obviously at a younger age, typically people will have more mobility, better flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it is important, but then just don't make it the only thing that you do. If you've got two half hour sessions a week with a group of young football players, fundamentally they're there to play football. So if you spend your whole time working on an isolated closed skill, then then players are probably going to become a bit bored of it. And then, then obviously, like you say, that is going to affect your relationships in your buying because they're just going to associate you as the warm-up guy or the straight-line guy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what I'd encourage people to do is to challenge their philosophies and think, well, okay, like, look, what do I, let's take a warm-up, for example. Like, What should a warm-up be? A warm-up for me should go from general to specific, from slow to fast, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of different ways that we can do that. You can do that in a straight line or you might be able to do that through a game. And what you might be able to do in that game is you might be able to put different constraints on it. And as them constraints evolve, it's probably going to go from general to specific, slow to fast, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, and I think, again, that comes from experience and, again, being able to apply your, your theoretical knowledge and understanding because theory will give it to you in, in almost a very black and white media because it will be on text or somebody talking. Um, but what I'd encourage people to do is to, to, to understand and digest that information and then be able to apply it and evaluate it to almost come up with their own way of working. So, so the theory is locked into what they do. That's part of their philosophy. But the way that they can deliver it can change. Um, so, so I think that's another thing that's sort of vitally important, if you like. Yeah, definitely. So it, it's essentially finding a different variation and kind of freestyling around the principles, but finding different ways to engage the players and buy into it, if that's correct. Yeah, so basically what you want to do, I guess, as a coach, and hopefully I've got these, is I've got my non-negotiables. I've got the things that I want to achieve. And obviously, anything you set out to do should really have an objective. And I think, again, going back to, to buying in relationships, I think quite often if you can explain to somebody why you're going to do it or why they need to do it, they are more likely to buy in. But the why doesn't necessarily have to change. Um, and you've probably heard this before um, Simon Salik's work. The, the what and the how can. So if you want to improve strength through, and let, let's just take a, a, an older player now. So let's just say, okay, what I want to do is I want to, I want to put a player for a squat program because I want to improve their leg strength, which might translate into leg power, which might translate into speed, uh, robustness, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we know leg strength is important and we know squatting is probably one of the best go-to exercises in your life for, for an S&C coach. But again, a squat might not suit everybody. So again, some of my experiences working with first team players, people might come from different environments and cultures and they might not be as comfortable squatting because they might have had a bad experience in the past. They might have a certain injury which limits their ability to do it safely or whatever the case is. So, so what I'm saying is as an S&C coach is I'm not going to change my why I'm doing it. I want to give you strong legs for these reasons, but the what and the how I probably can play around with so it might change from a back squat to a front squat, or it might change from a squat, front squat to a goblet squat, or I guess worst case, it could go into a leg press. Um, so so the, the key principle of getting somebody stronger remains, but I guess the way you do it is sort of flexible and dynamic and in keeping with the environment and the person you're working with at the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting point. And again, an interesting philosophy and approach to it. So with 
the youth athletes, physicality, just going back to that, how important is it in terms of their buying, etc.? So getting them part of S&C from a young age, getting them developing in that area, does it help their full potential to get them playing for the first team, do you think? Yeah, and I think just another sort of random point, if you like, I think the nice thing about being a strength and conditioning coach is in your title, you are a coach. And I think going back to creating the right environments, et cetera, et cetera, one of the best places I worked, anybody who was a coach was seen equally. So the players would view the S&C coach as important as the technical coach or, or whatever it was. Um, and almost trying to break down some of them divisions within the multidisciplinary team. So then it's just oh, well, he's the warm-up guy and he's the analyst and she's the sports scientist and she's the physio, et cetera, et cetera. And it's trying to break down them barriers so people are seen as equal. And I think linked into that, obviously, it's important for us to not only build strong relationships with the players we're working with, but also with the coaches we're working with. Mm. Because obviously, if the coaches buy into it, then the players are likely to buy into it. And I think we need to get away from the days where like, the sports scientist is doing the warm-up while the coaches are off setting up their their session or they're playing two touch in the corner or fundamentally they're undermining what's trying to be achieved. I think, again, through building relationships and communication, you can come up with a collective approach where you can support and challenge each other. And I think the players buy into that because they see the importance because they can see how it's going to help them as, as an individual. I guess to, to answer your question with regards to, to physicality, if you like, and the importance of that in the game, it's obviously vitally important and becoming uh, increasingly more so. So the game is definitely becoming faster, more explosive. There's more games in the season, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's no doubt that to become a top player, you have to be able to, to not only cope, but also to perform. Um, but I guess in, in my experience, there's almost like a, a minimum threshold that all players need to hit across a range of different aspects. So if you like to become a professional player there's a minimum threshold you need to be able to hit for your physical technical tactical psychological and and sociological if you like competencies so if you like you would need to be a, a seven or an eight across the board if you like so we scored a player out of 10 for everything like you need to be fairly good in every area obviously to, to be able to make it because um sort of the, the the competition is so high but within these minimum competencies, you almost need some super strengths as well. And I think I've spoken about this in the past. So, for example, if you had one player that was technically unbelievable, but only physically OK, they would still probably have a chance. And that works the other way as well. Um, so I think it's almost a case of performance profiling players to see the areas at which you can develop uh, and where you can push them to fulfil their potential. Um, so for me, this goes back again to a holistic approach and that strength and conditioning coaches need to be comfortable in acknowledging that there's other components to performance other than their own domain. Um, so, for example, if as an S&C coach, you work with a player who has some unbelievable physical quality, so maybe they've got speed, that's going to be great for you because you need to be challenged to make them even faster. Because if you can improve that, then it's obviously going to improve their game. However, if you're working with a player who, with regards to their genetics and a physical uh, profile, they're going to be a certain type and training will challenge that slightly, um, but you're probably looking at marginal gains, you might get more bang for your buck if you look somewhere else. So I guess if we go back to, to a youth player, for example, if we go to speed, like for me, can I improve somebody's speed? I would like to think so, yes. But I think speed's almost done in buckets, so you can go from being very slow to very fast. 
I don't think I have the skill sets or ability to make somebody who's very slow, very fast. Um, but what I might be able to do is to make somebody who's very slow, just slow. So basically push them into the next bracket. Um, so if I'm working with somebody and let's now say that they're 18 or 19, so they've gone through maturation and you've got a good idea what their speed profile is going to be like, I could spend all of my time trying to get them stronger, work on their running mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. But relatively, my bang for buck isn't going to be as great. So let's just say, okay, now it's a centre half. So we've got a 19-year-old centre half who's, who's okay with her speed, but they're never going to have blistering pace. What is going to be the most effective strategy to try to get them a career? Yeah, of course, you carry on with, with their strength work and their plyometric work and their speed work. But I would also probably want to spend more time with technical coaches to get the player to understand how they could get themselves into better positions. So, for example, how can they pick up on cues? So as the midfielder goes to the lift their head and they think, OK, a ball's going to go in behind, how can they drop that split second earlier? Or how can they use their body to run across an attacker to cut off their path so they have to check and come out? And I guess that's what I'm saying about it needing to be holistic. Like, yeah, we can improve someone's speed in a dead straight line, but there's other things that we might be able to do to improve their performance on the pitch. And ultimately, if you want to work in football, in my opinion, that's what you should be going after. It's trying to produce football players capable of performing to their best ability. Uh, and that won't always just be physical. I think if you're just interested purely in the physical side of stuff, my advice would be to go and work in something like track and field, because then you can fill your boots. Basically, the more physically developed you make your athlete, the better their performance is going to be. The problem in team sports like football is, is because they're quite multifactorial and complex, there's loads of other components that tie in. And I think uh, that's probably why, hopefully, I've had uh, the career I have. It isn't probably because I'm the best ever S&C coach, but hopefully I've been able to build good relationships. I've been able to communicate well. And basically, hopefully, I've been able to try to put the player first with everything that I do. And that means that hopefully, collectively, with myself and the player and the wider team, i.e. coaches, physios, doctors, et cetera, et cetera, we can work together to try to get them to the level that they need to be at. Yeah, fantastic. So it's, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle for that player and their attributes. And how do you bring it up as a complete puzzle to where it needs to be as a, as a team kind of thing? Um, yeah. Do you, do you think then, last question, Mark, then we'll wrap yeah. it up. Do you think, obviously, in your experience, most of the time it's been in elite level sport working with very talented players from youth and first team levels do you think those principles can be applied for say like your standard Sunday league grassroots player who's like an under 13 14 can they start looking at that puzzle for themselves to make themselves the best player as well for sure and 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 I am I'm aware how unbelievably lucky I have been to work in some of these environments but I still now work, if you like, at a grassroots level mm. or semi-professional level. And I think one of the things, one of my frustrations sometimes, if you like, if I work at a grassroots level, is people's perception of what it's actually like in a professional environment. And I think quite often the professional environment is a lot different than the way that we perceive it. And to give you an example, I've always had a saying that I try to, if you produce people, players will always come. And for me, the players that have got to the top of their, their game and to the top level haven't necessarily always been better players, so to speak. Nine times out of ten, they've been better people. They've been prepared to work harder. They've been more prepared to sacrifice. They've been more prepared to take on board feedback. They've been more prepared to challenge themselves. They've been more prepared to set high standards themselves and others. 
And I think they're the, the qualities that can be applied anywhere. Um, so I always try to go for a, a people first approach rather than a player first. So if you can develop people, if you can make people accountable, hardworking, hungry, willing to learn, et cetera, et cetera. Then, and I think that's obviously where people can evolve and develop. I think the concern is, again, if we just try to perf uh, apply performance models across the spectrum, it's not going to have any effect because obviously the constraints are too great. And you're trying to, if you like, compare an apple with an orange. I think it doesn't matter the, the level, the, the, the human being is still the human being. So to go for that first. <laughs>